Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Christian Seeley of Aksa Milzim, the managing director on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm very well. Good to see you. Very nice to have you here. Thank you. So you're actually British, although you haven't spent a whole lot of time there recently. No, I was uh, I was born in uh, Nottingham in England, and I was educated and brought up in England. But uh, for the last 23 years, I've been living outside England in Portugal and in France, mostly in the Douro Valley and in Bordeaux. What was the first introduction to wine? My first introduction to wine was uh, probably illegally young because my dad was a, a great wine lover and Francophile, and he used to write a lot about wine. He wrote books about wine. He was a journalist, and so our house was just full of wine. And uh, he used to love sh- he used to love sharing his wine with anybody. But uh, I was around more than most people, and uh, so he he shared a lot of wine with me. And so I uh, I got to taste some wonderful wines with him from a, an extremely young age, and it was a, a wonderful experience to discover wine in that way with someone who knew what they were talking about and could explain uh, what it was I was discovering. What was your dad like? Completely in love with the whole business of winemaking and all that wine meant. He was, You might say he was someone dedicated to the idea that uh, Life should be fun, and uh, he did. A, you know, he he spent most of his life having fun, and uh, an awful lot of it having fun with wine. And uh, I I learned that uh, approach to life from him. And uh, you know, you, one has to work as well. But uh, in the end, this job of making wine, which is what I do today, uh, you can take it as seriously as you like or as not seriously as you like. But in the end, what it's all about, what we're trying to do when we make a bottle of wine, wherever it is we're making it, is make something that is going to give people pleasure. And I never forget that. When I'm in a, a vineyard in, uh, in the Douro, in uh, Bordeaux, uh, the one thing I always bear in mind is that everything we do is geared to the final moment, maybe some years down the line, when somebody somewhere is going to open a bottle and have a good moment with some friends. Hopefully me. 
Yes. Well, it, <laughs> well, sometimes me too. And, and uh, I, you know, uh, it's one of the things that inspires me the most in, in uh, the job I do, which is looking after vineyards and uh, and making wine, is the thought that all over the world there are literally thousands of people who uh, who one day are going to have pleasure, I hope, tr- uh, opening some of the bottles that we're making. And your dad wrote some books about wine. Yeah, he wrote a few books. He, he uh, Bordeaux was his big love, but not only. He wrote about the Loire Valley. He wrote about South African wines, and he was a journalist writing about wines generally. Uh, you know, he he loved the product, and uh, and usually I think uh, he had a a great respect for the people who devote their lives to looking after vineyards. He was a farmer himself originally. Family were farmers, and uh, and I don't think he ever forgot the, the farming side of it. And so he, whenever I visited quite a few vineyards with him, and I noticed that he was always very interested to walk in the vineyards, meet with the people who actually uh, spend their time growing the, the grapes, and uh, that's something I've never forgotten. And in the vineyards that I look after, I try not to forget that, however grand the chateau, however great the wine, it all depends on. Uh, what goes on out there, that's a kind of cliche, but the, the people who uh, prune the vines, look after the, the vines, look after the grapes, uh, without them, the, those, those wines never get in the bottle. So did you end up ever helping your father on any of his wine-related ventures? Yeah, I did. I, I uh, Only one, but uh, when I, I left university, I read the English literature at Cambridge and spent three years wandering around reading poems and uh, looking at the clouds and having a very good time generally. And uh, I left university and discovered that there weren't that many jobs available to people whose speciality was reading poems. And uh, Looking at clouds, however. Looking at clouds, big big market. (laughs) And so I I wasn't quite sure what to do. Um, And uh, my dad said, well, while you're trying to make up your mind, I'm just off to Bordeaux for six months and uh, I'm going to write a book. Uh, I did speak French. And uh, he said, you can come, you can translate, you can do historical research, you can work with me, and above all, you can come to all the tastings and we'll have a great time. Having a great time was really the principal aim of his life, and and, uh, that's something I've inherited. And uh, so I thought, yes, this sounds like a great time, and so I did it. So I spent those six months in Bordeaux uh, having a great time with my dad, and it was a memorable time, but it uh, it was also the most extraordinary discovery and learning experience. How so? I mean, what happened? Well, the program was, uh, um, sounds like a program that's just all about having fun, but it was also quite hard work. Uh, We would visit usually two chateaus a day, and we would visit in the morning one chateau, taste the last 10 vintages of that chateau. Normally, we'd be invited to lunch. The proprietor would open a few older bottles, and then we'd get into our car, and then we'd we'd drive to the next uh, appointment, be another chateau, we'd taste 10 vintages, and then they would normally invite us to dinner, and they would open uh, a few old vintages. And that process would just continue uh, for at least five days a week for over a period of several months. I, after a few uh, days of this, I thought, you know, I like this life. This is a very, this is just how life should be. It, it was intensely enjoyable, but as I said, a, a very concentrated learning experience. Because even though I had very little tasting experience, really, apart from just drinking a few good bottles with my dad before I was twenty-two when this happened, 
When you do a, a tasting experience like that for six months, after a few days, you begin to compare, contrast, and to understand. You know, tasting is all about doing it and uh, thinking about it. You know, you've got to enjoy it. But uh, above all, you have to have the experience. And so it was a, a fantastic, concentrated experience that, that was one of the forming things in, in my career as a, uh, in, in wine, I guess. Must have been a kind of a cultural moment for Bordeaux. That's the 80s, right? I mean, you must have seen a generational shift. It was everything was changing. You know, it was the perfect time for my dad to write a book. But looking back on it, I think you're right. It was a key moment because uh, it was 1983. Naturally, they just had the 82 vintage. It was the beginning of the time when Bordeaux began to get prosperous because before then, for the preceding 40 years or so, most Grand Cru properties weren't actually making any money and, and people were struggling. Uh, 82 Vintage was an extraordinary success. The world interest, particularly the, the beginning of US consumers' interest in Grand Cru Bordeaux, boosted the demand and boosted the prices, although they were still pretty low in those days compared to what they are now. But it began to make growing grapes and making wine in Bordeaux at the Grand Cru level began to make it profitable. Uh, because it was profitable, people were able to um, devote themselves to it and they were able to invest. So I think that that time, 83, was a, a, an extraordinary moment to, to visit Bordeaux because it was the beginning of a, a period of change and I think a period that has been entirely positive for Bordeaux and for wine lovers because the quality of what's coming out today has got nothing to do with what was being made then. These days, you run several Bordeaux chateaux, including Petit Village and Pichon Baron. But how did that happen? I mean, you ended up going to Portugal for a number of years and overseeing that. So what was the segue there? Uh, it's very nice to go and visit Bordeaux with my dad as, as a, a writer's assistant. It's not obvious, even if you decide, I love this world, I want to be in it. The next step is actually getting into it. And uh, you know, I scratched my head a while and thought, how can I get into this wonderful world? And uh, my first thought was, go back to England and um, get a job, make lots of money and buy yourself a vineyard. I was thinking with the simple clarity of a 23-year-old. and. Uh, so I went back to England. I, I, uh, I started a business. I went to business school. I, I got a job in venture capital. I was doing pretty well, doing company turnarounds. Uh, but you know, the years were going on, not very many years, but even so, I thought, I'm never going to make enough money to buy one of the properties that uh, I liked the look of when I was in Bordeaux. So this, this business of getting into it is going to be more difficult than I think. And then uh, I heard that Axe Millésime, which had, was at the time run by Jean-Michel Caz of Lanchepage, had bought Quinto de Noval, which I knew. It was one of the properties that my dad loved, in, and we had Quinto de Noval ports at home, uh, and I had some. I had some Quinto uh, uh, de Noval 70 vintage at the time. I had a case and, uh, well, a few bottles left. And uh, anyway, I knew that Noval had, had gone through a very bad period in the 70s and 80s, uh, Is that true? There was a little bit of a dip there. It was a, you could you could call it a dip. The seventies were a dip, and the eighties were a, a big dip. Uh, and Naval, which had been you know famous from the nineteen twenties right to the, to the end of the sixties for making some of the most stellar vintage ports, some of the most beautiful vintage ports that were made during that period, did go into a sort of twenty year decline from nineteen seventy onwards. And uh, I you know I knew that story and. Um, and I knew that Naval was uh, had been sold to Axe uh, Millésime because it, it, you know, it was in financial difficulties. And so uh, I, I wrote a letter to Mr. Kaz and, and uh, I said, well, you've, you've just bought one of the most beautiful vineyards 
in the world. It's uh, one of the great vineyards, but it needs turning around. And uh, my job at the moment is turning around businesses. Uh, I've never run a vineyard, but I'm not afraid of difficult situations. I can imagine it might be quite complicated and difficult to turn this round, but I would love to have an interview with you to discuss the possibilities of doing it, because wine has always been my passion. And Jean-Michel Cars, you know, I thank him forever that he uh, he is a, a great man with a very entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, he got the letter and, and uh, agreed to see me. And uh, so I had a first interview with him, and we got on extremely well. And uh, I think the first interview, he was probably just seeing me just out of curiosity and politeness. And then uh, we had another one, and then we had a much longer one. And then he uh, he offered me the job of, of being managing director of Quinta de Naval. And the brief was to turn it round. So Naval, when I, I took it on in 1993 as MD of Naval, was uh, losing a lot of money. It was more or less broke. And its reputation had gone quite downhill, and it hadn't been making great wines for a long time. So the brief I had was to uh, polish up the jewel, if you like, and uh, get Naval back to making great wine again and make it profitable again. And so I had a wonderful experience, age 32, of having one of the great vineyards of the world in my hands with a great boss, which was Jean-Michel Cars, who was the chairman of, of the thing, and with a shareholder who knew that in order to make it work, they had to invest. Uh, so I, I had ev- everything was in place. And really all I had to do was make sure that I had a, a good team of people behind me and to start looking after the vineyard properly and start making great wines again and start selling them. And things would go well, and they did. So after a few years, Naval was you know back on course and starting to make great wines again, and and was back in profit. So it was a it was a wonderful experience. I'm I'm forever grateful to uh, to Naval actually because I remember the very first day I went there. Uh, I, I was left on my own there for a day and for various reasons. And I just spent the day walking around it. And uh, you were, you were I, left on your own? Does that mean the staff just left? No, <laughs> like no, they were just like, no, no we're scared of this guy. No, I don't mean that. But I, I was there with Jean-Michel Cars and he had to go back to Porto for something or other. And uh, he said, well, you just stay at Naval for the day. And I said, yeah, I'd be delighted. So I, I just wandered around. Let's and, be clear. Was there electricity and stuff? I mean, this uh, is like upriver. Yeah, like, it was. It was were all, there working facilities? It, it was pretty basic in those days. You know, there was, there was, there was one telephone. And, and uh, uh, you know, there, I there, saw this movie. It was <laughs> called Cape Fear. Look <laughs> <laughs> a little, <laughs> you know. But it, it, well, well, that day was a very special day for me, and uh, I, I mean, I'll never forget it because I just spent the day wandering around this vineyard, and and I thought, you know, you, this, this is a very special place. Naval is the kind of place where uh, anybody who comes there, and I've I've had it many times with people coming, they, they've realised. There is something unique, special, and magical about this vineyard, and and I felt it as I was walking around it, and I was thinking, you you need a bit of love and attention at the moment because the, you know the vineyard was not in a good state, and uh, and and it was one of the things that made me decide to uh, actually take the job that, that Jean Michel Cars actually offered me because uh, I wasn't sure at that stage whether I, whether it was you know sensible to just uh, take off into the middle of Portugal and and, and change my life completely and. Uh, I basically fell in love with the place then, and that hasn't changed. And so ever since then, I've I've done my best to, to look after it. And why do you think Jean-Michel Caz picked you? I mean, what did he see in you, do you think? We got on very well, and... Uh, He's, he's someone who's a good judge of people. If you if you manage businesses well, and uh, he, he always did, 
you you just have to work out whether you have to pick someone who who just might, for various combinations of reasons, uh, be the person who's going to do the job you want them to do. And that's, uh, I guess, he, he must have made that decision. Anyway, I, I did my best ever afterwards to, to justify that. And uh, in any case, uh, once I'd got stuck in at Noval, the initial falling in love that happened on my first day there became... Uh, a very intense affair, and you know, I just devoted myself to the place, and I, and I still do. I, anyone who's had the experience of uh, running a vineyard will know that you can establish this sort of uh, relationship with the place. And I'm very conscious of the fact that you're just a, a servant of the place, basically. Whether you've inherited it or whether you've just got the job of running it, you should be aware that you're part of something that is much bigger than you, that's existed for a long time before you, and it's going to go on existing a long time after you. And you're just a little blip in the history of the place. But what you can try and do is, um, you know, just do a good job of looking after this very special thing that that is in your hands for this period of time. Obviously, I'd like, I'd like the period of time to be as long as possible. I've been there for 22 years now. I hope to be there for as long as possible. So what were your first moves? I mean, you get there, you look around, you realize that some revitalization is necessary. How do you go about things? Well, I guess the first thing that I did when I arrived was to, to, to form the team around me. And that meant some people who were there before uh, we're no longer there because uh, inevitably if something's gone wrong, there are a few people who might have been part of the reason why it went wrong. And so those people uh, get to go. Uh, that's the ruthless part. Uh, and then uh, there will be very good people in the, in the team who, who might have, uh, well, there were very good people in the team who loved the vineyard, loved Naval, and were very frustrated by the idea that it wasn't going so well. And those people, once you identify them, you can promote them up and give them the chance to participate in the renaissance of, of the thing that, that they love. And, uh, and then you recruit a few other people from the outside who will, who will join that project. So basically, the, the, you, answer, you asked me what's the first thing. The first thing is forming the team, and that might take about a year, but it, it, uh, forming the team of people who, who share a vision of what we want to do, which is basically, it's not a very complicated vision. You've got one of the greatest vineyards in the world, capable of making one of the greatest wines in the world, which no longer was at the time that we took it over, and the, and the vision was clear get it back to making great wine again. And it was losing money, get it back to making profits. That's uh, any, any business, if you're, if you're losing money, it's not going to work. You, you've got to make it profitable so that it can be sustainable and so that you can carry on doing what you're doing. And of course, if it's a wine business uh, and it's, if you've got a vineyard in your hands capable of making one of the great wines of the world, well, you've got a responsibility to make sure it makes as great a wine as it possibly can. And you, you don't do those things on your own. Uh, uh, probably the most important thing I did, apart from formulating the uh, the desire of what we wanted to do and, and uh, uh, providing a little bit of the, the willpower, perhaps, to, to make it happen, uh, was recruiting a team of people who, who had the technical competence to, to do what was necessary in the vineyard and the cellars to make Naval great again. And so together, that's what we then proceeded to do. And set the stage for me a little bit. I mean, it is one vineyard. Yes, Quinta Naval is unique in the world of port because it's the only one of the traditional port shippers whose image is totally centered on the image of a vineyard. 
Quinton Naval does have its own special identity. This is it's this vineyard-based port shipper and very much vineyard-based vintage port. And and it's really important because if you if you taste a Quinton Naval vintage port today, uh, the most recent the great vintage that I've been uh, uh, while I've been responsible for Naval was the 2011. Uh, I think it's one of the most beautiful vintages that, w- that we've ever had at Quinton Naval. And when you taste the young 2011, if you know the old vintages, things like the 66 or the 55, which are from the great period of Naval, you can just, of course, it's completely different. The other ones are 50 and 60 years old. But the 2011, you can catch little echoes of those great wines of the past, something in the style. Uh, and that's because the 2011 comes from the same place as the 55 and the 66 did. And that place, it's on terraces or is it uh, planted a different way? Or? It's 143 hectares. It's quite a big vineyard. It's on terraces. We have a little bit of vertical planting, but hardly any because most of Naval is too steep for vertical planting. Uh, we've got a very high proportion of walled vineyards, you know, the old stone terraced walled vineyards. And this was something important that we did when we, uh, we started in uh, 1993, we did an awful lot of replanting of the vineyard. And at that time, when people were replanting vineyards, they tended to uh, bulldoze the old stone walls in order to plant patamares, um, the, the terraces without walls, because it was cheaper and, and easier to mechanize. And we decided to keep all the old stone walls of, uh, of Quintad Noval and replant the old walled vineyards and mechanize them. And this was actually the first time that that had been done in the Douro. And it, was, it, was, it wasn't terribly complicated, but it, it, it was a little bit more complicated than just bulldozing them and doing patamaris. Uh, but the end result was, uh, I, you know, it's a result I'm very proud of because uh, we kept those walls, which I think are part of the, you know, the, uh, it's, a, it's a sort of an inheritance that we, we got from previous generations of very hardworking people who built those walls. They're very beautiful. I think it's a very great shame whenever any one of them goes down. Uh, and we managed to preserve them and rebuild them sometimes. And so there's the aesthetic side of it. Uh, the practical side of it is that uh, vineyards planted on uh, stone-walled terraces, you get a much higher density of plantation, which actually is uh, positive for quality. Patamaris are very good, and you can make great wine from Patamaris, but the, you get a lower density and higher productivity per vine, which is a, it, it's a challenge to manage. And uh, the, uh, the stone walls are very good for the higher density. And then we actually managed to retain uh, those traditional characteristics of stone walls and mechanize them at the same time. So 143 hectare, I mean, there must be some variation in terms of place and, and uh, elevation. And Yes, of course. The, the, well, the, it's, it's almost always the case in the Douro that because of the nature of the terrain, that if you've got a vineyard of any size at all, there's a, vari- a variation in height. We go from uh, just over 100 meters above sea level which is about the level of the River Pignon, up to 450 meters above sea level. And uh, that, that band, basically between 150 and 400 meters, is, is the, the high-quality traditional band for letter A, the great vineyard terroir making the best vintage ports, and, and Naval is almost all in that band. And then geographically, there are, there are three main chunks to Naval. Uh, there's one big parcel. The biggest one is in the Pignao Valley, which is a little valley that runs into the Douro River. And then uh, on the other side of the hill behind Naval, we have a, a substantial bit of vineyard in another valley called the Roncao Valley, which is completely different in terms of climate and conditions. 
And indeed, the schistous rock is rather different in its formation and, and its character. And then uh, we have another parcel, uh, smaller but quite significant, on the other side of the hill, which uh, overlooks the Douro River itself. So we've got three parcels overlooking three different rivers. One, the Big Douro River, one, the Pinyao tributary, and one, the Ronkan tributary. So it's all schist, but it's different kinds of schist depending on where you are. Yes, I, I, uh, I think in the Arctic Circle, the, uh, the Inuit people have many different words for snow. And in the Douro, we don't actually have different words for schist, but we look at it and we think, yeah, that's different schist. You know, uh, it, it is all schistous rock, but there are subtle variations in uh, the color, the density of the stone, the hardness of the stone. And uh, I'm sure that these differences do make important differences for the vines. But it's not only that. Uh, the makeup of the Douro with these sort of winding, sinuous valleys. If it's winding and sinuous, it means that you have various different expositions to the north, to the east, to the south, to the west. Uh, you have different heights with different humidities, with different heats, uh, and sometimes different rainfalls because the rainfall can come from one side and not from the other. Uh, the difference in soil is important, of course, and uh, it's a factor. The difference in tiny microclimates all over the property is enormously important. And uh, that's part of the complexity that makes up the, um, the greatness of a Naval uh, wine because we're free to, to choose wines from those various areas. But th there, is, there are certain years where um, you know, one, one part of the vineyard does very well and the other part does less well as well. But are there, because you make a range of different kinds of port, you know, whether it be tawny or vintage tawny or vintage port or LBV or the new black label. So are there certain parcels that tend to go into certain lots year after year after year? Does a certain kind of parcel lend itself to a certain kind of expression regularly or no? Uh, to a certain extent, that's true. There, there are one or two parcels where we um, we can be pretty sure that uh, in a good year, uh, where all the all the weather circumstances are right, you're likely to have vintage quality wine. There are other parcels that that don't usually give you the the tannic structure that you're looking for in vintage, but can give wonderful elegant, fine uh, port that would be well chosen to become uh, uh, colletta ports. So yes, there are a few parcels like that. But uh, I have to say that most of the vineyard, it's not like that. They produce different kinds of wine every year. And sometimes they are on the tasting, you know, we taste them blind first off. And so we're not, we're not allowing our knowledge of the terroir to dictate what we think about the wines. We taste them blind first. We taste them afterwards, knowing what they are as well. And we, we do blind, knowing, blind, knowing. And I think that's quite a good way, by the way, to taste wine, uh, because sometimes it's, it's useful to taste without knowing, and sometimes it's useful to taste uh, when you do know. But there are some parcels that uh, in some years will make beautiful vintage quality wines, and some years will make lighter, more delicate wines. And we think, yeah, that could be a tour. And sometimes they wouldn't, you know, they might be just, you know, good wines, uh, very good wines that, that, that are not vintage or colletta style, but can make good LBVs. It does vary. But the answer to your initial question is, yes, there are, there are certain parcels that are consistent. Probably the majority of the vineyard, it, it, it depends on the year. So are the grape varieties in different blocks? You know, I assume you have different grape varieties, or are they interplanted? Is it somewhat more random? We, we, no, we have some parcels that are interplanted. We've got some field blends in, in various areas of the vineyard. 
But most of Noval now is is planted in blocks, and uh, we use the most of our vineyard is planted to the five or six noble grape varieties: Torriga Nacional, Torriga Franca, Tinto Cão, Tinto Barroca, Tinto Amarela, uh, Tinto Orige, and Suzanne. There's about seven sort of identified noble varieties, and that's most of what we got. But there are a few others in there and uh, in among the reds, but uh, that's mostly what it is. What are the takeaways in dealing with those? Are some of them more difficult, more tricky than others? Yes, they are. The the the, the trickiest of all, it seems to be a, a general rule, uh, which is just how life works, I guess. That the the one that that uh, not only in the Douro Valley, but the 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 grape variety that gives you the highest potential quality uh, is not going to be the easiest grape variety. And uh, Torriga Nacional, which for me is the noblest and finest of all the varieties in the Douro, is probably the most difficult. It's extremely temperamental during flowering, if there's the slightest uh, difficult wet conditions, there are some grape varieties that can just flower away in difficult conditions. And with uh, Torriga Nacional, if it gets a bit damp in the flowering time, you can end up not having any crop at all, which is you know, always uh, uh, regrettable. And then uh, Torriga Nacional, Actually, curiously, it doesn't you know it suffers quite a lot from heat. If it's particularly hot and particularly dry, the leaves on the Torriga Nacional vine can can be seriously affected, and then the the yields are naturally low on Torriga Nacional. You're, you're talking there are certain varieties like Tinto Rorige, which is a perfectly decent variety, but not so great, I think, in terms of quality, uh, which would give you forty to forty five hectoliters a hectare more if you push it, and uh, Torriga Nacional will give you about half that, 20 to 25 uh, hectoliters a hectare. It makes a big difference when you're getting half as much from your vineyard. But the end result from Torriga Nacional can be sublime, and, and so it's worth all the trouble and all the risk. But it's it's probably the highest risk of, of all the varieties, I'd say, and the highest quality. And then there are others. You know, Tinto Rorige is extremely reliable in terms of producing a good, steady yield. Uh, and makes very decent wine, but never quite hits the heights. You know, uh, so I think there's a good argument for having a good uh, mix of grape varieties in the, in your vineyard. But if you if you want a good proportion of of Torriga Nacional, you've got to take the risk and plant it yourself. When the grapes come into the winery and you start to ferment them, how do you separate the lots? Do you separate them by parcel or by grape variety or by when they're picked or? In most of Quinta Noval, the the parcel is the grape variety because they, they you know most of it is block planted, and in most cases we will vinify the the parcels separately. But sometimes we might decide to mix two parcels, which might be two two grape varieties. And and uh, if you have a parcel of Torriga Nacional planted next to a parcel of Torriga Franca, for example. You might easily decide to mix them in the, and you're picking them at the same time. You might decide to mix them in the uh, the ligar and ferment them together, and uh, and that can work very well. And so we do both, really. And what's it like foot stomping in a ligar? It's an extraordinary thing to experience, and it's an extraordinary thing to see because most winemaking all over the world today is done in um, stainless steel vats in quite industrial sort of conditions, really. The temperature's controlled, everything is uh, electronically controlled, and, and the results from that kind of winemaking are absolutely great. And that's you know, part of human progress. Um, but uh, thousands of years ago, the way that men made wine was, you know, it's pretty basic. You pick the grapes, you stomp them with your feet, probably in some kind of stone trough, 
and then you wait for it to start fermenting. And when it's finished, that's the wine. And uh, you know, making winemaking sound a little easier than it is, but that, that was certainly how it must have started. And uh, in the Douro Valley, it hasn't changed much because when you make port wine, I'm only talking about the, uh, the, the, the relatively small number of great port wine quintas that have serious ambitions to make great vintage port. But all of them, I think almost without exception, make their wines in Lagars because it has been shown to be the best way to make high-quality wines. At any rate, at Quinta de Naval, 100% of the uh, port wine from our Quinta is made in Lagars. And what happens is we pick the grapes during the day, we bring them in, uh, we put them in these stone troughs, which are like quite large granite paddling pools, uh, which come up to about mid-thigh on a uh, human leg, and then in the evening, we have a team of people who would go in and tread those grapes for about three and a half hours with bare feet, bare legs. And uh, then around half past 11, they get out and they go to bed. And what's left is a, a perfectly crushed must. Sometime over the next uh, 12 hours, that will start to ferment because there are, there are yeasts on the outside skins of the grapes. There's sugars inside the, the grape, and once they've been crushed, the two come into contact, and fermentation will start. And it's completely natural. We use just natural yeasts that occur in the vineyard. And once the fermentation has started, within about 48 hours, half of those natural sugars have fermented into uh, alcohol, and half of the natural, roughly half the natural uh, fruit sugars remain in the, the must. At that point, we interrupt the fermentation by adding very pure, very neutral grape spirit in a proportion of about 20% to 80% must. And, and that's it. We, we, you draw off the wine and we've made our port. So it's, it's absolutely not technological winemaking. It is uh, as basic as winemaking can be. Uh, it's one of the reasons I love port, partly because of the, the rather romantic idea that you're in touch with the way that human beings made wine thousands of years ago because you know they didn't used to have stainless steel vats, but they sure did have stone troughs and feet, and that's how we make it. So we're still doing it that way, and the, res the results are pretty good. And uh, that's an attractive idea in itself. And the other thing that I love about it is that, for me, it's the absolute perfect proof of the idea that a wine is great, not because of anything particularly clever that we do in the winery. Nothing technical, nothing, no fancy tricks, no fancy technology. If you've got a great vintage port, the only reason it's great is because you've got a great piece of vineyard with great grapes that you've looked after well, and you've brought them into those lagars in perfect condition, uh, and then you just stomp them correctly, and, and that's about it. And so port will be great because of the place it comes from and because of the quality of the grapes that go in. And uh, you get a lot of winemakers who say, oh, it's all about the vineyard. It's a kind of a, a cliche for winemakers to say it. And of course it's true. But with port, you see it really demonstrated in the most literal way because uh, the only way you can make it great is to make sure you've got great grapes coming out of your vineyard because afterwards you're just treading it. And, and uh, there's, there's not much fancy trickery after that. You know. So at what point do you start to determine where those lots are going to go? When do you start to decide, oh, well, this could be a vintage port or this could be a tawny port? You might have an idea quite soon because one of the um, enjoyable things about port wine winemaking is that you've got a finished wine remarkably quickly. Within three days of the grapes being picked and brought to the Lagars, the wine is more or less finished and uh, you can taste it. 
and uh, it's in a barrel uh, and it's starting its its life of aging after. so you can you can actually taste the wines and we do very regularly throughout the the harvest uh, because of course harvest lasts for 6 weeks and we there are many 3 day cycles of of making port wine in the lagars and we're tasting the wines constantly during that period and so obviously if you're tasting the wines every day you notice variations in style and character of course it's too soon to determine anything but uh, you can have an, you can have ideas you know you taste wine and you think wow that's uh, that's got some really big uh, tannic structure that, that, that I think this is going to be a, a, a great wine perhaps for a vintage port and then you you might taste another and find it has this sort of wonderful delicate elegance and you think oh this is what I'd like to see for a, a, a tawny but at that stage it's just suppositions in your mind the real decision doesn't happen for at least a year afterwards. One of the things with Noval is that it seems that several of the declared vintages for vintage port also match up with declared vintages for tawny port, Colleta tawny ports. And so that seems to imply that maybe a great year is a great year, or am I reading that wrong? No, I think I think that's a perfectly I think that's perfectly right. The reason why that's possible is I think it's important to remember that vintage port is a wine of selection. We don't make it every year, and when we do decide to make it, it represents a tiny percentage of the total amount of port we've made in that year. could be something like 5 or 6%, sometimes quite a bit less, of our total production uh, of port in that year. So... Uh, that means that there's a whole lot of uh, extremely good port we made in that very good year that is not going into the vintage port blend. And uh, if we declare a colleta, it might represent just 1% of our total production. So uh, if supposing that 5% of your production has gone into your vintage port blend and 1% has gone into your colleta blend, uh, you know, that you've just taken six, the top 6% of your production in a very great year. Uh, there's, there's no reason why you can't do that. And we do. That's exactly what we do. But sometimes, you know, when we don't declare a vintage year, you can have... Uh, some absolutely delicious wines that would not be a vintage style that could easily make colletas. So sometimes you can make a colletas in, in, in not a vintage year as well. When you follow those two things, because now you've been doing it for more than two decades, so I yeah. feel like you have some perspective to look back. When you follow well, a vintage port and a colletas port from the same year, how do you find that the characteristics differ in the glass? I mean, obviously one has... A certain kind of, you know, more oxidative note, and the the fruit's dried, and the other has more primary fruit. But besides that, what is reflected in a Coyeta tawny of significant age and wood, and and from the same year, what is reflected in the vintage? I love doing this, and I I very the the, the two that I serve probably the most often at the moment would be the um, the two thousand vintage port. Quinta de Naval and the 2000 Colleta, both of which I love. I think 2000 was one of the the great years that we've had in the last uh, two decades, and uh, I think slightly underestimated actually. I, I, you know, because people made more noise about 97 and about 94, but I, I absolutely love 2000, and and uh, uh, so I often I often serve the two together, and uh, they really are very very different now. When they started the, their life. They were both wines made in Lagars. Uh, look pretty similar. Uh, they might have had slightly different styles at the beginning. They, they might have, you might have had a little bit more tannic concentration in the vintage and a little bit more of the finesse on the on, on the um, 
the wines that went in to make the Colleta. But really, you're talking about tiny nuances, and, and the wines would have looked the same. Very dark, red, young port with lots of primary fruit. Uh, and that's how they would have started their lives. As you say, the, the vintage port retains, uh, I think forever, a, a lot of those primary fruit characteristics because it's being aged in the bottle and not in contact with oxygen. And Tawny Port just develops in a, in a different way. And it, it, it's really like um, two wines that, that start off almost the same go off in two completely different directions. And it shows how important the way you age a wine can be to the, the final product you get. And some people prefer vintage style. Some people prefer uh, old tawny style. And, and uh, I've never understood why you have to prefer one or the other. I think it's absolutely perfect to have uh, both. I love both. And, and they, they do give you two... I think what's fascinating about drinking a vintage port and a collieta port from the same vintage is that they give you two different windows into what that vintage was all about. It's two different understandings of what the 2000 year could give in terms of uh, sensory pleasure. And they're different pleasures because of uh, the way they've aged. And uh, for me, that's the fun. Just to have those two glasses in front of you and compare, it's just, well, it's enjoyable just to have one of either, but to have them both is, is just great. It turns out that Noval has a long history in both styles, which isn't true for everybody. Because, you know, yeah. sometimes certain houses really emphasize their tawny and certain houses really emphasize their vintage, but Noval has a long track record with both. Yeah, Naval has always had a foot in both camps in that respect. Uh, Naval has made some of the legendary vintage ports of the past, uh, the 1931 vintage port and the 1931 National, were, were, you know, probably the most famous of all of those. But at the same time, Naval was laying down ports consistently to make old Collieta ports. And I think Naval has always had this status of... You know, traditionally, the image was that the, the British-based houses were more specialized in vintage and perhaps the Portuguese were more specialized in tawnies. It was very much a simplification because it was never quite so clear-cut as that either way. But if you accept the simplification just for the sake of argument, Naval was always the great Portuguese house that was accepted in the traditional markets, for uh, the Anglo-Saxon markets, for great vintage port. But also carried on making great tawny port. So Naval had a foot in both camps, although it's it's very much a, a Portuguese port house. They also make the Nacional port. Yep. And what is the tradition of that, and what exactly is that? Nacional is, you know, we're very lucky to have it. There's just this one small parcel of Nacional in the whole of the Douro Valley. It's just two hectares, just slightly under five acres of vines at the heart of the Quinta Noval vineyard. And uh, what's special about Nacional is that in this very small parcel, ungrafted vines survive and thrive. And for some reason, we really don't know why, in that little parcel, they survive. So the result is grapes that are very different to what we grow in the rest of the vineyard. The vines are less vigorous. They produce fewer bunches, smaller grapes, lower yields, and always something very different to what we get from the rest of the vineyard. Not always better. There are some years where the National does not produce uh, something particularly great, but when it does produce something great, it is absolutely extraordinary. 
And uh, I think when you compare a National and a Quinta Noval vintage from the same year, Quinta Noval vintage is one of the great vintage ports of all, very beautiful, but the National has something else. It has an extra dimension, uh, an extraordinary power and youth and, and uh, tannic structure to it. National has an almost eternal youth to it. You can taste the National that's 50 years old, and, uh, and people who are really good port tasters, who probably might never have tasted it, will guess it to be a wine that's 20 years old. It's just different. So for us, a huge privilege and pleasure to have this small parcel of vineyard to look after, which, again, for me, confirms something very important about wine. In the same way that making wine in Lagarde is a proof of the importance of of the vineyard because Lagarde are not a technological way to make wine. Uh, the National also, for me, illustrates the idea that a great wine is great because of the place it comes from and because of the particular circumstances of the year in which the grapes grew and not because of anything particularly clever that we do. Because I've been looking after Naval now for uh, nearly 23 years, and some years we've had some very great nationales, and uh, I love those wines, and I'm, I'm very proud to have been there while they happened. Uh, I certainly don't think that it's because of, uh, uh, of us that they are great, because if that were so, we'd have been able to do it every year, and we haven't. Uh, we we had a period from 2004 to 2011 where we didn't make a single national. And, uh, you know, every year it was, the grapes were good. They made a very good wine, but it wasn't the great thrilling thing that we know to be the national. And, and uh, I decided when I took over at Naval that I would never declare a national vintage unless I was convinced that it was absolutely uh, outstanding and extraordinary. So 2005, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, there was no national at all. If it was all about us being brilliant winemakers, we might have made a bit of an effort and tried to make one. But uh, it's not like that. Uh, when the National decides to be great, it just decides to be great. And uh, we have to look after the vineyard. We have to look after the grapes. We have to accompany it. Uh, but it really, it marches to its own drum. But when it's great, it's really great. So are there certain things that the vintages that have been declared as National have in common? I mean, is it better in warm years? Is it better in cooler years? Is it... No, uh, I really don't think that I could say that there were there were years where I'd be walking around the vineyard in the beginning of September and think, uh, yeah, this is going to be a great national year. No, it, it isn't like that. And uh, it's just mysterious. It, 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 we, we taste immediately after the harvest, uh, when it's all over, uh, Antonio Grelis and I, we, we do our first tasting completely blind of all the different lots of wine. And there'll probably be about 50 different lots of Lagar made port with vintage potential. And uh, there are some years where you're, you're just going down the line and you stop at one wine and you think, uh, I know what that is. And that's, that's when the Nationale is great. But uh, no, there, aren't, there isn't a, a profile. It, it follows its own rhythm. And is it more of a sandier parcel, or you might think that that was the case because uh, you know, obviously the phylloxera, uh, you know, we know does not thrive in sandy soils, but actually it's schist as rock, and uh, we truly don't know. We have tried to plant ungrafted vines in other parts of Quinta Naval, and all I can say is it didn't work. So I, I think that you probably probably you could say that it's a very fragile survival. 
I'm not implying that the great, by the way, that the vines date from before 1860 because that's not true. Uh, when I mean when I say survival, they are ungrafted vines, but the average age is about 45 years, and um, when one dies, we replant it. But uh, it's fragile in the sense that uh, you know phylloxera could arrive there any time. And so this story, which is a, a wonderful story, producing one of the most magical great wines of the world, it could end at any time. I, I, I hope it's not going to end ever, but and I hope certainly not that it'll end on my watch, but uh, it, it could happen. There is, there is no natural protection of that parcel against phylloxera. For some reason, it, it works, and uh, long may it continue to do so. So one of the other things about Naval is that you do make a dry red table wine. Yep. Are those generally from the same vintages as declared from the house, or how does it carry through? I mean, what do you see when you make a dry red table wine from the same year that you make a Colleta port from and that you also make a vintage port from? It does tend to be the case, but it's not always the case that if it's a very good year for vintage port, it can be a very good year for red wines as well. But it isn't always the case. So, for example, Recently, 2014 was an absolutely fantastic year for the red wines, and we're not going to be making a vintage port from 2014, and we haven't yet decided about a colleta. Uh, but uh, you know, there are some years which are uh, you could say oh, this was really good for the the table wines, perhaps not so favourable for the ports. You have other years where you say oh, it's more the port year, and then there are some years where it's both. So uh, you know, the Doro is is endlessly surprising and it refuses always to to be categorized and and uh, you just have to keep an open mind and accept that it's like that yeah. what's been the learning curve on the still red because it's been a shorter history very short history and uh, you know the first red wine that we produced at Quinton Naval was 2004 vintage that was after many years of experiments in the in the 1990s but uh, we we produced our 2004 vintage at the moment where we're selling our 11s and 12s on the market so uh, you know that's a very very short curve compared to the other wines of Naval which have been going on for centuries and certainly decades in terms of the wines that people know today i think that we're at the beginning we're, we're on a very sharp upward incline of learning. Um, when I do a vertical today, going back from uh, the wines we've just made, the 2015s and 14s, which aren't in bottle yet, but uh, you know we can taste them, and we go back to the 2004s, it's very clear that uh, the quality of what's been made in recent years is uh, some considerable steps up of what we were making in the beginning. Uh, but we were very proud and happy with what we were making in the beginning. And uh, I'm fairly sure that in another 10 to 15 years, we'll do the same thing again and, uh, and we'll feel the same way in relation to today. I think we're learning every year. Uh, we know we have in our hands one of the great vineyard terroirs of the world. We know that historically it's been capable of making one of the great wines of the world in vintage ports. And we're just beginning to discover how to unlock the quality potential of that terroir in unfortified red and indeed white wines. And you know, while I'm thrilled with what's happening, uh, what's happened so far and what's happening recently, uh, the thing that excites me the most is where we're going. Was there any history there of still red that was maybe just drunk there? Yeah, there was always a bit of that, but you know, it wasn't taken very seriously, and it, it was really a, a red wine made for the consumption of the people working at the vineyard, and and uh, I think it, you know it took quite a lot of experimentation and new approaches to winemaking to uh, to arrive at the quality that's being made in the Douro Valley today. There weren't too many accidental 
very good red wines from that period. There, there were one or two people, you know, Barcavelio was the exception uh, the, the, with Ferreira making a, a, you know, a very grand Dora red for a very long time, but there weren't very many. And which do you pick first? Do you usually pick the red wine grapes for the still wine first or the port? There's no rule about it, but it would tend to be the, the red wine grapes first because uh, you don't want them to be much more than 14 degrees of potential alcohol, 14 and a half or thereabouts. Uh, whereas with port, it, it doesn't really matter if, it, if they get you know, extremely ripe, as long as they retain all their, their balance and freshness. So you, can, you can harvest port wines to make port at 15 or 16, and it's not a problem. You just add a little bit less uh, alcohol. So the tendency would be to pick the red wines first, but it's not always the case. There are certain grape varieties that ripen much later. And uh, so Tinto Caon, which is the, it's a lovely grape variety, one that we uh, take very seriously both for port and red wine at Naval, uh, it ripens about five weeks later than the earliest ripening grapes. So if you're going to make red wine with Tinto Caon, you would harvest it after a lot of the port's been harvested. One thing that must be true with port is that with a 20-year period, it's almost like you're just starting to get back some of the results, right? You know, because it's on a longer time frame of aging. So having that be the case now, what's the plan for the next 20 years? I mean, what have you learned that's going to be important for the next two decades? What I've learned is that we've just learned a bit, and we haven't learned at all. And I would say the the most important thing is to... Is is the awareness uh, that we've just still got a whole lot more to discover? Uh, I think that if you ever felt, uh, you know, I've got the hang of this now. I know how to make port. I know how to make red wine, and there's not much else to learn about this business. Uh, if you ever felt like that, then you should just get out and go and do something else. And and uh, we're constantly questioning everything we do. So uh, I've learnt over the last 22 years that you can make progress. I've learned that it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's um, sometimes hit and miss and it's, it's not always uh, a linear progress. Uh, but above all, I've learned that if you keep questioning everything, if you keep pursuing uh, the dream of trying to make the most beautiful wine that your vineyard can make in any given year, as long as you keep that aim in front of you and trying to do everything you possibly can to get there, there's a chance that progressively over the years you may improve. Christian Seeley was left alone one day at Quinta Noval, and he rather liked it. Thank you very much for being here today. Thanks a lot. Christian Seeley is the managing director of the wine properties of AXA. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs... And so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.